0: So the million-dollar question this Resurrection Sunday morning is, then what? What next? What happened then? And regardless of what walk of life you come from, regardless of your faith background or lack thereof, whether you were born on a Thursday and in church on a Sunday... Whether this is your first time to darken the door of a church, whether it's been a while, no matter what background you come from, each and every one of us are faced with this simple question, then what? And the reason that we have to answer that question is because history has recorded that a real guy named Jesus came from Galilee. He claimed that he was the Christ and a lot of folks believed him. He did miracles. He taught Israel some very new and very different stuff. He claimed to be God. He said he was returned. He said he would return, and his disciples and followers believed him. He was murdered on Passover. He was buried in a tomb. Immediately after he died, his followers claimed that he rose from the dead. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that history records that, but that's exactly what history records. And so we're faced with a question, once he was in the tomb, then what? And if you're like me, if you're a thinker and you want to kind of unpack the history of that thing, we're, that's what we're going to do this morning. Historians affirm that if a document of antiquity, a historical document of about 2,000 years old, so ancient historical documents, if they are written within 200 years of the event that they're talking about, they are considered authentic true, historically accurate within 200 years. So let's examine some of those documents that were written within 200 years of the life, death, and burial of Jesus from Nazareth. The best Roman historian, a guy named Tacitus, wrote about Emperor Nero's destruction of Rome and his decision to blame the Christians for the fire that had destroyed Rome in 64 AD. This is what Tacitus writes. Roman historian, not a Christian. Here's what what he writes. It's up here on the screen. Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom their name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that's crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, that's the resurrection... Thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Here's what Tacitus is saying. A man named Jesus was crucified, died, buried at the hands of Pontius Pilate under the reign of Tiberius, and a most mischievous superstition broke out after the fact. Pliny, the younger, Roman lawyer, Roman magistrate, not a Christian, writing in AD 112, writes this. He says, they, Christians were in the habit of meeting on a fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. His followers worshipped him as a God. Josephus, Jewish historian, writes this, At this time there was a wise man named Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and died, but those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Josephus, not a Christian, Jewish historian writes that the Babylonian Talmud, uh, just before the end of the second century, not a Christian document, confirms Jesus' crucifixion on the eve of Passover and the accusations against Christ of practicing sorcery and encor- encouraging Jewish apostasy. Lucian of Samosata. Um, eighty one twenty five, second century Greek writer admits that Jesus was worshipped by Christians, introduced new teachings, and was crucified. Mara Bar Sarapia, not a Christian, in a letter to his son, AD seventy three, confirms Jesus was thought to be a wise and virtuous man, was considered by many to be the King of Israel, and was put to death by the Jews none of these ancient documents are Christian documents all within 200 years of the life death and burial of Jesus the Christ the son of God and so we have to answer the question then what what happened next Modern scholarship confirms the same thing. Bart Ehrman states that the existence of Jesus and his crucifixions by the Romans is attested to by a wide range of sources. He is not a Christian. John Meyer, not a Christian, v- views the crucifixion of Jesus as historical fact and states that a number of historical verification techniques help establish the crucifixion of Jesus as a historical event. It happened. John Dominic Crossan, I've got a book of his on my shelf. It's called Excavating Jesus. I do not recommend Excavating Jesus, but beside the point, John Dominic Crossan, Crossan, extremely skeptical when it comes to the miracles recorded in the Gospels. Extremely skeptical. He writes this that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, since both Josephus and Tacitus agree with the Christian accounts on at least that basic fact. Classical historian Michael Grant says the idea that Jesus never lived is an extreme view. Not a Christian. Here's what he writes. It's up here on the screen. If we apply to the New Testament, as we should, the same sort of criteria that we should apply to other ancient writings containing historical material, we can no more reject Jesus' existence than we can reject the existence of a mass of pagan personages whose reality as as historical figures is never questioned. The theory that Jesus never existed at all has virtually no support from modern scholars. In fact, using just ancient documents, just historical documents that are not the Bible, we can reconstruct almost the entire gospel account. Here's what we know without even picking up a Bible. Jesus was called the Christ. It was well documented documented that he did magic. He led Israel to new teachings. He claimed to be God and then he would return, which his followers believed. His followers worshiped him as God. He was murdered on Passover and buried in a tomb. Following his death, his followers claimed that he had rose from the dead and they continued to worship him as a God. And we do so even today. So you can say Jesus was a good teacher. He was a prophet. He was a miracle worker. He was a good, moral, kind, and generous man. I agree with all of those things but based on the historical documents the question you and i must answer is this what happened when he hit the tomb we we haven't even read the bible yet and the historical documents tell us that jesus from nazareth was crucified under pontius pilate dead and buried we have to answer the question then what In case you're not familiar with the story, let me recount it for you here. Jesus was betrayed late on a Thursday night and put through what amounts to a lynching, street justice, on Thursday night and into the morning on Friday. The established government overlooked the mock trial in order to prevent a riot. During the trial, Jesus was cursed, beaten, and whipped within an inch of his life. He was crucified mid-morning outside of Jerusalem. He died in the late afternoon. And a professional executioner ensured that he was totally dead by ramming a spear into his heart from whence blood and water flowed. It indicated that Jesus was in hypovolemic shock. He had lost most of the blood in his body because of the whipping that he endured. And so water started to build up around the outside sack of his heart. So when he was stabbed in his heart, blood and water flowed out. It was a common practice to make sure that a criminal was dead, someone who had undergone crucifixion or some other execution. Stab him in the heart, let's just make sure. In other words, Jesus was really and totally dead. Two of his friends, men named Nicodemus and Joseph, not Jesus' dad, neither of them Jesus' disciples, friends of his, went to Pilate and and uh, asked for the body. The likelihood is they had to bribe Pilate for the body. They rushed to prepare the body of Jesus for burial because sundown on Friday marked the beginning of the Sabbath. And they wanted it to be done by then. They would have covered him with more than a hundred pounds of burial wraps, spices, and ointments. And laid him in a tomb carved out of a rock, not in a shallow dirt grave. And they rolled over the top of it a large heavy stone. Mark 16, chapter 1, tells us that Mary Magdalene, one of Christ's followers and good friends, wanted to make sure that the body of her friend had been properly prepared for burial. But she didn't get to it in time on Friday, so she had to wait till Sunday morning until the Passover was over. The reason that she went to the body to make sure that it was properly prepared is, number one, the folks who had prepared the body had hustled through it because they had to be done by sundown on Friday. Number two, the folks who did it were two men, and we rarely do anything right the first time. So for a woman to go back and double-check work was a really, really great idea. And that's where we pick up our story. If you've got a Bible, open with me, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got one for you. There's one in the seat back right there in front of you. If you don't want to pick that up, that's great. We've got the scripture up here on the screen so you know that I am reading it. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We've got a number of different translations, not versions of the scripture, but different translations, ESV, NIV, NRSV, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm reading from the ESV this morning. And so we're picking up the story where Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early Sunday morning to make sure the body of her friend had been properly prepared for burial John chapter 20 verse 1 now on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb and immediately she started shouting he is risen and all the apostles shouted back he is risen indeed that's, that's not true uh, read verse 2 So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She tells these two disciples, I was just there. There is nobody there, and there ain't nobody there. What's her assumption? Someone has taken him. Someone has taken him from the tomb, and I don't know who took him, and I don't know where he is. Verses 3 through 7 tell us that Peter and John go to the tomb to double-check Mary's work. Isn't that just like a guy? And when they show up, yep, there's no body there. And Peter and John remind Mary of all Jesus' promises, and then they start shouting, He is risen! Not quite yet, verse 8. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. He did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. He believed what Mary had told him. Yeah, he's somebody stolen, somebody took him. That's what he believed. How do I know that? Verse 9 For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Verse 10 Then the disciples went back to their homes. Why? Because people in first century Palestine, when they died, did the exact same thing that people in 21st century Canada do when they die. Stay dead. That's what dead people do. And they do it really well. So everyone assumes that he's been taken. No one assumes that he's risen from the dead. They didn't believe it because it's unbelievable. And they looked for any other possible explanation. Why do we start there? Why did we start there today? Here's what I want you to know. If you are with us this Sunday morning and you are skeptical, perhaps even cynical, join the ranks of the disciples and Jesus' closest followers they were skeptical just like you. They were skeptical just like me. Modern historians have even, uh, some have, uh, have asserted that Jesus' body was stolen from the tomb. And they assert it as if it's kind of this new theory. We just came up with this. Jesus' body was stolen from the tomb. And that's how the, the tomb was empty. The, the Scripture records, or, and his, history records, that the tomb was empty. And so modern historians say, oh yeah, the tomb was empty because people stole his body. And they do it as if it's new. That's not new. That's Mary Magdalene. That's 2,000 years ago. That's Peter and John. Well, darn it. Someone has stolen our friend. The body, the dead body of our friend. If that's the seat you sit in this morning, the seat of a skeptic, you are so welcome here And you have found a friend in Peter and John and Mary. But then something happened. Something changed. Pick it up in verse 11, John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping?' She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, she thinks someone has stolen the body. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Why doesn't she know that it's Jesus? Two reasons. One, Jesus' body is now in its glorified state. It's now in his exalted state, and it looked different than his physical body. But it was still Jesus. Number two, the reason that she doesn't know it's Jesus is because Jesus is what? Dead. You ever run into a friend in like a really weird context? You know that friend that you always see at work when you run into them at the grocery store and you completely forget their name? You ever do that? Yeah, me too. No offense if I've done that to you, right? In Mary's mind, she's going, there is no way that I am seeing what I'm seeing, so much so that she didn't even recognize it was him. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then a light goes on. She realizes who she sees. She realizes who she's looking at. She realizes that the man that she is laying eyes on was once dead and now he is alive. I find it very interesting that Mary remains skeptical until she heard Jesus call her By name, Perhaps he is calling you by name today, too. The Gospels go on to tell us that Jesus appeared to the disciples. In fact, he appeared to over 500 witnesses. They touched him. They ate with him. They talked to him. He was once dead, and now he's alive. One of my favorite accounts in the Gospels is not just they touched him, they talked with him, they ate with him. I think that's great. But he cooked them breakfast in the next chapter. Did you know that? Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, cooking breakfast. I'm guessing it was pretty good. Dead men don't eat, dead men don't walk around, dead men don't talk to people, dead men don't cook breakfast. He was dead, and now he's alive. Immediately, a movement began in Jerusalem that spread throughout the Roman Empire based on one statement and one statement alone. That statement was not Jesus was a good teacher, not Jesus was a great prophet, not Jesus reformed Judaism, but Jesus is alive and he is God. What confirms the Bible's answer that Jesus rose from the dead? Honestly, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of things. And we can search for alternate answers, which the disciples did, but you know what we won't find? Alternate answers. At least satisfactory ones. So, what confirms the Bible's answer that Jesus rose from the dead? I want to give you two, although there are many. The first is the written testimony of his followers Peter, Matthew, John, all disciples, Mark, who is a close confidant of Peter, Luke, a detailed historian, Paul, another apostle, and check this out two guys named Jude and James who were biological brothers of Jesus. Jesus was the oldest. He had younger brothers, Jude and James and others. And they all wrote down, Jesus was dead, now he's alive. He is the Lord, he is the son of God. He has beaten sin and hell and death because he rose from the dead. Now let me ask you a question. What would it take for you to convince your earthly brother that you were the son of God, dead and now risen to new life. That's a tough sell. I don't know about you, but if my brother called me today and said, I wanted you to know that I was dead and now I'm alive again. You're like, it's Easter, dude. Yeah. Stop boring me, you know. But Jesus said that to his biological brothers and they believed it and wrote it down let me ask you a question it's a real easy question everybody's going to answer together i'm going to count one two three everybody's going to answer together here's the question so formulate your answer in your head real easy when is your birthday everybody got it okay everybody say when is your birthday one two three awesome how do you know How do, you, how do you know? You had, a, you had a birth certificate? Those things can be forged all the time. There's a mall right around the corner that'll do it for you. Your parents tell you? They're in on the conspiracy too. We have doctors and lawyers and nurses, and even folks that were born 80, 90 years ago are confident in their birth date because of one historical document. We have far more than that with Jesus. Medical professionals, friends, historians, even historians that did not like him. Colleagues, and yes, even his own siblings, siblings have created all kinds of written documentation, far more than you or I have for our birthday, and all of that written documentation says he is alive. One more thing that that for me is a big deal when it comes to trusting the written testimony of the Scripture, the written testimony of the Scripture, it's called the criterion of embarrassment. I thought it was silly when I read about it, but it's a real historical uh, uh, documentation to determine the veracity and the authenticity of a document. So when historians evaluate uh, documents of antiquity, historical documents of antiquity, when they evaluate them for authenticity, they actually account for the nature of mankind. I'm not kidding. They know that when you and I make up stories, we tend to write ourselves in as the hero. We tend to write ourselves in as the Superman that's wearing a cape. So if you were a disciple or if I was a disciple and we were making up the story, or if the disciples themselves made up the story, here is what we would expect the story to say. Everyone bailed out on him except for me. I was there, buddy. I stood with him. I stood faithful, I knew he was coming back, I stood by the tomb, I waited for the sun to come up over those three crosses, we played Don't Stop Believing by Journey, we were counting down from ten, and then he came back to life, and I was there, and I never left him, but none of the biblical authors do that. Here's what they say, we scattered, we were afraid. We betrayed him, we denied him, we left him. And we simply did not believe it until he proved it. If you make up a story, you do not write yourself in as the chump. And why are they written in as the chumps? Because they're recording historical facts. They're not making something up. Number two reason why we can trust the authenticity of the document, the historical record in the scripture. Number two is the living testimony of his followers. Better put, the dying testimony of his followers. All but one of Jesus' disciples died a martyr's death. The only one who wasn't executed was exiled to an island and died alone. Me, being an extrovert, I love, love, love being around people. You might as well kill me. I don't want to be on an island alone. And then the other 11 died martyrs' deaths. Here are a few examples they were stoned, they were decapitated, they were drawn and quartered. One was thrown from the top of the temple, one was run through with a sword, and several died the very same death that Jesus did crucifixion. Because he was a good teacher? Because he was a prophet? Because they had a mass hallucination? They knew what they saw. People don't give their lives for something they're not sure that they saw. Uh, many of you know this. I just moved here about seven months ago from the States, and I live up in Stouffville area. Anybody up north, Stouffville, Newmark, Get Aurora, cool, 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 very cool, great. Okay, so here's the deal. That's as like woods and country as I've ever been in my life. That <laughs> some, some of you are like, wow. Wow, that is embarrassing. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Very embarrassing. So I'm walking down our driveway, and we, we're, we're living in a friend's home right now, and it's a, it's a bigger property. So my dog and I are walking down um, our driveway uh, just a week ago, and we heard, I mean, something crazy, like up, up in a tree. It sounded like a helicopter taking off. Like I thought I was going to hear the theme song from M.A.S.H. or something. You know, it sounded like, I mean, it was just... Sh- crazy. I looked up. My dog is scared, and I'm scared. I looked up. There is a turkey in a tree. (laughs) I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Turkeys do not fly. Turkeys don't fly. So I took my handy-dandy smartphone, and I googled it. Do turkeys fly, you know? (laughs) Sure enough, the turkey that you have on Thanksgiving does not fly. But wild turkeys do fly. Have y'all ever seen one of those things? They are ugly birds. Whoo, whoo! No wonder they're mad. I would be mad too if I was that ugly. Shoot. So the turkey flies out of a tree and flies to another tree. I'm like, what? Well, what in the world was that? And then he flies out again, and sure enough, it's a turkey flying around on the front of our property. Now, look, if one of you came to me and said, what did you see in that tree? And I said, I saw a turkey. And they say, all right, let's test that theory. Here's how we're going to test it. Say it one more time. I saw a turkey. And what we're going to do is we're going to cut your elbows down to the bone. We're going to cut your knees down to the bone. We're going to tie wires onto your bones. We're going to tie ropes onto the wires. And we're going to tie those ropes onto horses. And one, two, three, we're going to whip the horses and have them run in four different directions and pull you apart. It's called being drawn and quartered. One of the disciples died that way according to church history. What is my answer when they ask me again, what did you see? A blue jay. <laughs> I saw a blue jay, and it was pretty, whoo, pretty. <laughs> I might have hallucinated. I don't know. It might have been a flashback. I'm not sure, but it sure as heck, was not a turkey. No one dies for a lie. No one dies for what they think they saw. No one dies for a good teacher, for a prophet, or someone who lives on in their hearts. They die for a risen Savior. I picture some of those conversations, actually. I picture some of those conversations when the disciples had to face folks who said, we're going to kill you if you say it again, that he's alive. And I just, I I, I have nothing to back this up, right? It's not in the Bible or whatever. I just, I picture it in my mind's eye and I think of them looking at someone in the face and saying, I'm just telling you what I saw. It's a neutral statement of fact. He was dead and he's alive. that's, That's the only story I got. I ate with him. He cooked me breakfast. I put my hands in his scars. I put my hand in his side. He was dead and he's alive. That's all I can tell you. So we've answered question number one. Then what? Empty tomb, risen Savior, and we celebrate him today. That's question number one. Question number two is, so what? So what? So, so what? What, what, does that, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me today? What implications does that have for my life? What consequences does that have for my life that Jesus rose from the dead? And here it is. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Write this down because this is kind of that bottom line truth that we'll all walk out with today. File it away in the back of your mind. File it away in the front of your mind. Better yet, write it down so that you can remember it. Chisel it in stone. Here it is. The resurrection means that all the absurd stuff Jesus said is actually true. The resurrection means that all the absurd stuff that Jesus said is actually true. Let's define that word absurd. Here's how Webster's Dictionary defines that word absurd. Webster's Dictionary says it's an adjective of an idea or suggestion, wildly unreasonable, illogical, or inappropriate. If you've read the Gospels and you had no idea that Jesus rose from the dead, you're reading some of the stuff he says, you know what you would think to yourself? Well, that's absurd. That's wildly unreasonable, illogical, and even inappropriate. But the resurrection means that all the absurd stuff Jesus said is actually true. Let's start this way absurd statement number one that Jesus can forgive your sin that Jesus can forgive your sin. And I'm not just talking about your sin between you and another person, a broken, fractured relationship. I'm talking about sin on a cosmic level, sin between you and God. Jesus has claimed in the gospels, Matthew 9, Luke 5, Mark 2, just some examples, that he can forgive your sin. That is illogical, wildly unreasonable, and inappropriate. If it isn't, I don't know what is. But look what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. He says, who is to condemn? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. This is what Jesus does. He goes before a holy God on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. Never sinned, never spoke an angry word, never took a second look at that woman who was walking by him on the street. Never. Tempted, but never sinned. So he goes before a holy God. Why? Because he's risen, because he's alive. Dead people can't intercede, only living people can. Jesus goes before a holy God on our behalf. He is raised and is interceding for us. Jesus lives again and intercedes for us before God. In the risen Savior, God sees us as clean and forgiven. So here's what that means. The resurrection means that forgiveness on a a cosmic level is available to you right here, right now. Forgiveness on a cosmic level level is available to you right here, right now. I read an article this week about an incident that happened in Iran. Many of you may have read the, read the same article. It was an article about a young man who was 19 and killed a 17-year-old in a street fight. And he was tried and convicted and sentenced to death. What they do is they put a noose around this man's neck and they put a blindfold on him. They set him in a chair right up on a ledge with a drop-off. And they called the parents of the deceased, the parents of the kid that was killed. They have the opportunity to walk over to this chair and push him off. Retribution, revenge. But the article said that they didn't do that. They walked up, they took his blindfold off, took the noose from his neck, said, I forgive you, lifted him up, and set him free. They had the power to do that, too. Grant forgiveness. Set him free. Why is it that stories like that move us? Why is it that stories like that get in our hearts and get in our minds, and, 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 and and they create something inside of us? One, I believe that they give us a glimpse into the gracious heart of the living God. Give us a little snapshot, a little picture. Two, I believe that they reveal what each of us needs, grace, undeserved favor. And I don't know about you, I would really like to see myself as the forgiver. The reality is that I probably belong in the chair with a blindfold on my eyes too. Here's why. Here's why I know that. Because I know that everybody has a secret. I've been in ministry now for 17 years Been around people for 17 years. Been around people longer than that. Um, Been doing ministry for 17 years. And I know that everyone has a secret. That's something that you would never tell your spouse. That's something that you would never tell your best friend. That's something that's even tough for you to admit to yourself. Maybe it's that thing that you did on a business trip. Maybe it's that deviant sexual fantasy Maybe it's the money or the company you stole money from that you used to work for or that you work for now. Maybe it's that person you hate so much that you picture yourself kicking them off a ledge with a noose around their neck. And it's hard to even admit it to yourself, much less to somebody else. Here's what happens in the resurrection. That God comes along. And he says, in the risen Jesus, there is forgiveness available to you on a cosmic level, right here, right now, even from the secret sins. The Bible says he removes our sins as far away as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest ocean, and remembers them no more. The risen Savior ensures forgiveness on a cosmic level. Number two. The resurrection means you don't have to fear death. The resurrection means that you don't have to fear death. The last time I checked, the odds are still pretty good that each of us will have to face death. One out of one, still, have to face death. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday you or I and I will pass from this life into the next. But Jesus makes another very absurd and even inappropriate statement in John chapter 11. A very good friend of his lost a brother to leprosy, and he was dead and in the tomb. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he makes this statement in John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Unreasonable, illogical, absurd, and wildly inappropriate to say at a funeral. Except that moments later, Jesus would say, Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man would walk out of the tomb. Just a couple of chapters later, even Christ himself would be raised from the dead. The resurrection says this, I conquered death, I beat it, I won, and in me, you can have victory too. How many of you like me grew up on video games? Did you grow up on video games? Good, good, four of you, perfect, that's awesome. <laughs> the rest of you non-voters. How many of you are, 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 you love video games today, even now? Good, I got a 60-year-old in the back going like this, It's great, perfect, let's talk about that. Um, how many of you have got kids or grandkids that love video games? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Good. Now we're talking. So, so for me, growing up, and some of you, I'll kind of date myself here, but some of you probably, um, do you remember when the, when the original Nintendo came out? Woo, boy, that was like when I met Jesus and the original Nintendo. That was life changer, life changer. And so all kinds of games on the original Nintendo, there were Super Mario Brothers. Remember, you could, you, like you could only go forward, you couldn't go back. You remember that? Yeah. Some of you, do you remember Contra? Who remembers Contra? Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A, B-A, select, start. I got 30 lives. Boom. Boom, Contra. I could beat Contra like crazy. I could beat Super Mario Brothers. You know which one that I could never beat? Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. I could never beat Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. And the, the funny thing about Mike Tyson's punch out is every level, every new guy that you fought in the boxing rink, it was, so, it was, a, it was, it was a crazy time. There was a war on, I don't know. But we're, we, were, we, were, we were focused on Mike Tyson's punch out and beating that game and I could never beat it. But every time you beat a new guy, uh, the, the, the game would give you a code to come back to that guy. So if you beat it through level seven, it would give you a code so you didn't have to beat levels one through seven to get to eight. Or if you beat it through level 10, it would give you a code. So when you came back to the game, you punch in the code. You little punk kids that like save your work now, no way, man. We had to get codes. You know, you couldn't save your work back then. It was, you know, we we, we didn't have running water and electricity. We couldn't save our work. We had to have a code. So one day a buddy of ours across the street called us. Uh, Actually, my best friend growing up, and he said, hey, I beat the game. I beat Mike Tyson's punch out. Said, no, you didn't. You didn't beat Mike Tyson. That's the final level, right? I beat the game. So five or six of us gather together, all you know, eight-year-olds, and we all go over to this house. We say, prove it. Prove it that you beat the game. Well, he turns the game on. He punches in the right code, and sure enough, he's beat all the levels. I mean, I was this close to falling down and calling him blessed right there. I thought, I thought this is the Messiah. This is the second coming. This is it. No one can beat Mike Tyson's punch out. It's a silly illustration, but but here's what it tells you. Jesus beat the game. We don't have to fear the final level anymore. It's over. He won. He has all the codes. And it sounds very, very simple and very, very silly. Until a couple years ago, a friend of mine from high school, the doctor walked in and said to his wife, hey, you've got cancer. You're not going to make it. Three little kids. First words out of her mouth. Jesus still rose, so we still trust. Six months later, she lost her battle with cancer. And today, he's celebrating a risen savior in a church in Phoenix. He does not have to fear death anymore. Jesus beat the darn game. He has all the codes. And his resurrection confirms it. We do not have to fear death Finally, the resurrection means that you can live as a world overcomer. You can live as a world overcomer. We're going to talk about that. We're going to unpack that just a little bit today and quite a bit over the next four weeks. But just really quickly, John chapter 16, 24 hours before Jesus goes to the cross, he makes this statement to his disciples. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Be strong. Stand firm. Have courage. Why? Because I have overcome the world. I'm sure that this statement, take heart, I have overcome the world, sounded a little silly to the disciples at the time, don't you think? I'm sure that it sounded real, real silly 24 hours later when Jesus was dead. Take heart. I've overcome the world. You haven't overcome squat. You're dead. Wildly unreasonable, illogical, inappropriate. Except, look at John 16:4. It's up here on the screen. Just before Jesus makes that statement that he has overcome the world, take heart, I've overcome the world. Just before he makes that statement, he says this. He says, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you, re- you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, once the resurrection occurs, once you recognize that I am alive, once you recognize that I beat death, you'll look back on these absurd comments and claims and know that they were 100% for real. And not only has Jesus overcome the world in and through his resurrection, look at what John would write to his churches. Same guy that wrote John chapter 16 that we were just looking at, take heart, I have overcome the world. Same guy wrote this letter. He writes this in 1 John 5 verses 4 and 5. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You can overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus overcame the world, and you and I can live as world overcomers. What does that even mean? What does it mean to be a world overcomer? Real quickly, here's what it means. It means that we're all born into religious thinking. We're all born into religious thinking, thinking like, I have to be better, I have to know more, I have to do more good stuff than bad stuff. I don't have to do a lot of good stuff, but just enough to outweigh the bad so I can impress God. And so when we add Jesus as a good teacher or a prophet into that mix, what we think about Jesus is that he's come to make me better at doing that. He's come to make me better at impressing God. He's come to make me better at climbing the world's ladder. He's come to make me better at playing the world's game, at succeeding in the world's eyes. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to set us free from the silly pursuits of the world. Jesus came to make us overcomers. The Bible says that we are now more than conquerors. Jesus says, I'm here so you can be set free from your own expectations, set free from what binds you, set free from this driving force inside you that says, i got to be better to impress God. That's the world. World overcomers. Those who live in Jesus and believe he's the son of God, take Jesus at his word. And he says this, I'm not here to make bad people good. I'm here to make dead people alive again. And we can live as world overcomers. Forgiveness on a cosmic level. No fear in death. We'll sing about it in a moment. And living as a world overcomer because we are in Christ I don't know if you know this but Easter is a little bit of a stressful time for pastors it's kind of the it's kind of the Super Bowl of uh, of Sundays right and, and, and I tend to do this just like every other pastor does. We put pressure on ourselves to, to do this great message and like say, man, Jesus is great, he's worth it, Like convince people to follow Jesus, convince people to accept his invitation. I'll just be really straight with you. There is nothing I can do to make his invitation any sweeter than it is. No message anybody could preach, no story anybody could tell, no joke, Mike Tyson's punch out even, He extends forgiveness on a cosmic level so you could be in right relationship with God. You don't have to fear death and you can live overcoming this world each and every day because of the risen Savior. His invitation is to follow him. His invitation is to give your life to him. It's not to add him to what you're already doing. It's saying, whatever I need to do, Jesus, to exchange what I've got for the forgiveness that you extend. From personal experience, I can tell you there is no greater and no sweeter name than the name of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried, and is risen now and alive again at the right hand of the Father. And he calls you today by name to give your life to him. I want to address three people specifically. And then we'll close. For those of you who are skeptical, for those of you who are going, I don't know about this. First of all, you are more than welcome here. We are so glad that you're here, not just this Resurrection Sunday, but each and every Lord's Day morning. Join us in worship. Join us to hear from Jesus. We are thrilled that you're here. And might I add, skeptics, that you're in really good company with all the disciples. (laughs) You're in great company. But here's what we believe about Jesus. We believe the more you get around him, the more that you hear from him, just like the disciples did, you'll get to the point, just like they did, where you will say, wow, he really is alive. But more than anything, I want you to know that you are welcome here and we're thrilled that you're here. Please keep coming back. For those of you who follow Christ... Today, more than any other day, is our day to celebrate. He's alive, he's risen, he is Lord. And in just a few moments, we're gonna sing a song that I hope is familiar to you. This is our time to sing like no one is listening, to let tears flow freely, to smile and laugh and raise your hands because our hope is in the risen Christ and in him alone. Finally, For those who are thinking, I need forgiveness. I don't want to fear death anymore. I don't want to be trapped by my own expectations and by the expectations of this world. I want to live as a world overcomer. You can take heart today because in Christ you can live as a world overcomer without fear of death and fully forgiven on a cosmic level in Christ. For those who long for freedom, we preach not ourselves, but Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. I didn't even start by saying my name. You know why? Because I want you to walk out of here saying Jesus is alive. Some of you have joined us for the last couple weeks, couple months. Some of you just brand new here and you're thinking, today is my day to make a decision to follow Jesus. Today is my day to accept that invitation. Today is my day to say yes to him. We think you picked a great day to do it because Jesus rose on Resurrection Sunday. That's when we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead and so your new life in him can start today. You picked a great day to do it. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus and say yes to his invitation to new life. All it is is saying yes to trusting Jesus with your sin. A lot of pastors shy away from talking about sin. I have no problem talking about it because it's the one part of the Bible that I have the most empirical evidence to support. My wife would tell you the same thing I got a lot of sin. I'm like, well, you're a sinner. Yeah, that's easy. Next. That's easy. It's saying yes to trusting Jesus with your sin. Number two, it's saying yes to trusting Jesus with your life. You're risen, you're Lord, you're King. Here it is. Here's my life. And what he holds in his hand is forgiveness on a cosmic scale. What he holds in his hand is peace as you face death. What he holds in his hand is a life overcoming the world. Would you bow and pray with me? We bow our heads before the Lord because it's a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. We're kneeling before him, humble before him. And for those of you who do not want to make a decision today to follow Christ, please hear me again. You're welcome here. Feel no pressure to do so. But I know that there are people in this place that say, I want what Jesus offers. I want to say yes to him. So I want to lead you in a prayer this morning. You don't have to pray it out loud. God hears your heart. God knows your mind. He knows what's going on. Here's that simple prayer. Jesus, today for the first time, I recognize that you really rose from the dead. Today for the first time, I recognize even what that means, that you can forgive me, that you can come and live in me and make me a conqueror, that you can take away fear and death, that you've gone to prepare a place for me. I trust you, Jesus. And today I say yes to trusting you with my sin. I know you dealt with it for me on the cross. And today I say yes to trusting you with my life. I'll just give you a moment in quiet, just you and the Lord, to talk to him. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around, please, this is kind of just between you and, and the Lord, and I just want to kind of respond just so you can indicate. If you prayed that prayer today, if you said yes to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something really, really bold. Nobody's looking, just me. If you prayed that prayer today, would you just slip your hand up for me? Be bold. Slip your hand up. I just want to see. Cool. Great. Great. I can see you. Awesome. Fantastic. 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 Lord, for those hands that went up this morning, I pray, O oh Jesus, that you would impress upon them the hope that they now live in, that they are fully clean and forgiven, even the secret sins have been washed away, that they are risen to new life in you because you rose to new life, that they live as world overcomers and they do not have to fear death. God, for those of us in this place who call you Lord and Savior, We respond in song now and close that way, saying that our hope is found in you and in you alone. In the name of Christ, God's people said, amen. As the band and and orchestra and, and, uh, and Mark and the team come back up to lead us in this final song, if that's you today, I know you just took a really bold step by showing me your hand. I appreciate that. Second thing is we want to connect with you. We've got a group of folks called the Yes Team. They're wearing name tags. They're on. A, they're in a kind of an area out in the foyer. There, you saw it on your way in. A big display that said, "I said yes." That's you saying yes to Jesus. And there's a team of elders and servants and leaders in our church. All they want to do is connect with you, get your name, email, and phone number, so that they can follow up with you. They want to pray with you. I'll be out there as well just invite you to take that next step in learning to say yes to Jesus every day and living in the freedom and life that he offers, amen? Let's stand and sing together from the bottom of our hearts at the top of our lungs that our hope is found in Christ alone and we conclude this way.